Yeah, she'll teach you how to be artistically you. Not afraid to talk about what's taboo. So don't play small. Join the podcast with Nikki Collins. Autism Unmasked. Hello and welcome to this week's episode where I'm joined with Susan Isa, who is a therapeutic emotional regulation coach. She's an ex-senko and she uses her expertise to work mainly with families to prevent and repair the damage of ABA, which we're going to be talking about today. It's much needed and it's a shame that this therapy, inverted commas, is still in practice, especially with all the information that is now available to individuals and families. So it's a good job that we've got Susan on board to help to help these individuals. Welcome to the show, Susan. Thank you very much. And thank you for that introduction. Um, absolutely brilliant to put it in inverted commas, because I think it's the furthest from what therapy ever set out to do. Um, mm. and yeah, no, and absolutely. And I came out of schools because I saw so much of it, um, both really clear ABA um, and ABA, inadvertent ABA. Um, fundamentally, life is ABA for a lot of us neurodivergence. And we go around looking very hypervigilant and making sure we're not standing out. The last thing we need is to someone say, that's the right thing to do. Let's do it for 40 hours a week, which is what happens far too often. Absolutely. And the expense as well incurred by families to actually fund it. And essentially, for those who don't know, and there might be a different way that you explain it, but the way I explain it is that ABA is dog training for kids without the compassion, and it's barbaric. I think the hardest thing with ABA is, especially in the modern practice, there are an awful lot of very, very, very well-meaning individuals. Uh-huh. And in their minds, modern ABA is nothing like the ABA of the... Ele- I mean, even if you knew its roots, it was electric shock therapy in order to stop behaviours. It was punishments. It was tying children down. It was holding them down onto chairs. Um, it was strapping them in onto chairs. And because they're not doing these really blatantly torturous and abusive practices, they genuinely believe that it's a really kind way of helping children not stand out. Um, and so the heart, the hardest part of the conversation is with parents when they think they've done absolutely the right thing. Um, and it looks very caring and loving and playful and, and rewarding. Um, and you're saying you're actually creating trauma. I've, I found myself creating key phrases to address the um, trauma in adults of ABA. And it was your own needs and wants are absolutely valid. Not just the need, your want is valid, and other people's reaction is not the gauge of whether you should be doing something or not. This is completely mind-blowing thinking for people that have been through ABA, and um, because they've spent their lives being told their natural instincts need to be suppressed at any cost. And we've replaced the really blatantly abusive measures with manipulation and coercion. I mean, even if you look at the way they are they train ABA practitioners to build a relationship with a child is virtually indistinguishable from what you would look for in someone grooming a child what is the purpose of ABA and it's to make children indistinguishable from their peers that's from their own documentation and what I want people to look out for is there's ABA light in the UK because 
people have reacted so badly to ABA, we're dressing it up as something called PBS. And again, I looked at their website and to me, reading what I read was the start point for PBS is to measure against a typically developing child and find where that child is lacking. How is this something that you want to do? I don't know why ABA is so supportive, but we're talking about the cost. And then you go to places like America and when we are global, and this is something that's across the world. Um, and it's the only thing insurance companies will fund. It's the only thing you can get support with. Yeah. Within the UK, fighting to get funding for anything other than ABA is probably the hardest fight you fight for your children. And so it just becomes, well, everyone's saying it's amazing. It's not amazing. And anything that when you go onto a website and one of the top things is behaviour, modification, anything like that, You've got to remember that ABA was born from the same person that created gay conversion therapy. Absolutely. There's another objective to this. So compliance is part of that system. It's to serve that system. It's much easier to get in your typical to comply. And they need to find a way, I find, when they created this box of normal, um, Anybody not fit in that box either needed to be forced to comply or broken. Makes sense because neurodifferent people are the outside of the box thinkers and we start to question it. If something doesn't make sense, it's like, well, why can't I flap my hands? Why can't I line my toys up? If I go into a car showroom, this probably isn't the thought of a child, but it's where my brain goes. If I go into a car showroom and the cars are neatly stacked on top of each other, I'm going to walk straight back out because. That makes no sense. Exactly. And all I can boil it down to is there's more of them. So we've decided these rules based on 80% of the population. And it's understanding that this calling things needs only when it refers to neurodivergence is a very strange thing. When we all have needs and we all have strengths, there are some universal needs. If we look at the fact that we can't fly. Mm. Nobody is walking around going, swearing at our arms and going, ah, I can't fly that summit of arms. Why aren't you doing your thing? <laughs> thing. But then you've got typicals who need small talk, who need fluff. I, I always give the example that I had um, when I first started out, I had a neurotypical VA and I had no idea that me sending an email that says, can I please have this report, da, 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 da meant that they spent a week going, oh, is Susan really cross with me? Oh, my God, am I going to get fired? Am I going to lose my job? Because I hadn't said, hi, how are you? How's your dog? How's your aunt? How's Mabel? And and, and so they need the small talk to feel comfortable. Okay. Need- that did just seem like I've put something to the point and it's worky. <laughs> how many times have you received nikki you know that email and it's got all the small talk at the beginning and then it comes to the point and you're like i just want to answer the point do i have to tell you how i am because then i have to ask how you are and just want to answer the point (laughs) i've i think i've adopted to that quite well i often write out the email and then when i read it through i go back to the beginning and then add the hi how are you (laughs) <laughs> hope you're well hope you and the family are well question mark smiley and then when they say it back oh yes I'm well how are you I'm great thanks but well, that's the small talk done tick <laughs> Absol- and, and there is the kind of almost key in the difference between 
what ABA teaches, which is compliance and the understanding that's required so that we're meeting each other halfway. Mm. So we have learned to go back and, 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 and when you get over familiar with someone, you end up doing all the stuff, saying everything you need and then going, oh, and good morning, sorry. Yeah, yeah, I do that too. <laughs> but now I just say to people, look, if you want an email with a bit of fluff, I'm more than happy to give you more information and, and ask more questions, but that'll take me a week. If you're happy for me to just send subject and the attachment, you can have that in 10 minutes. I actually don't mind which. And mm. that is the crucial difference between compliance and cooperation. It's, yes. it's, and it's, I do have a fear for a lot of neurodivergent conversations going the way that feminism did, where it became more about hating the other side. Mm. And and um, when it's just about mutual understanding and meeting each other halfway, um, instead of us putting in all the toil and always having to do the pleasantries. Yeah. No, it makes sense. It is about, and I think neurodifferent people, neurodivergent people have spent a long, long time, a disproportionate amount of time catering to the needs of neurotypicals and neurotypicals keep on saying but you're doing it wrong it's wrong it's wrong it's wrong you need to change actually we need to level the playing field and neurotypicals and I think they're starting to albeit slowly need to raise their game and start to meet us halfway so that we can say right why did what what is it about that what what, what what's your process behind it I'm curious about this. What was your intention behind that? And actually starting to go in with an attitude of curiosity rather than hackles up that everyone is obviously out to just get you. Yeah. Not all about that. Absolutely. And and when people ask what are the alternatives to ABA, Mm. it's exactly that. And I could sit here and say, list occupational therapy, speech therapy, all these things. But all of them, used correctly can be great used incorrectly can incorporate aba so really it's exactly what you just said it's it's about self-understanding for Mm self-advocacy which is the exact opposite of what aba does because when i'm dealing with adults that have been through aba what you're also battling is the internalized ableism yes and because this is one of my biggest issues with ABA is it defines normal. Mm-hmm. And so we internalize, if you've used ABA from a very young age, you've internalized what nice looks like. However, what it doesn't allow for is the fact that your natural instinct is direct communication. And so while you're expecting nice, you can find a lot of teenagers and a lot of trouble going, but you're, you're shouting at them over treating you the way you treat them when they're you're being direct and you're like but the rules are you told me being nice they would speak to me in a certain way I'm speaking in the way that comes naturally to me right um and I haven't even thought I'm not being nice yeah instincts are our instincts I mean I've watched my own three children tone police and get offended by each other (laughs) while offending (laughs) each other and what and it was such a light bulb for me going, oh my God, you're all expecting each other to treat each other by neurotypical standards, yet you're all you're talking by autistic standards. <laughs> and it's just, and you're not realizing that. 
<clears throat> and I had to sit down and and that's the alternative is going, look, this is what someone might be thinking. This might be what's coming out of their mouth. Yeah. Um, and if we can catch that early and instead of teaching the difference between um, social, you see, it's really hard because you want to say social skills, but social mm. skills have been kidnapped by ABA in that we're meant to just adapt how we're thinking because there's a nice way to be. Yeah. Kind way to be. Um, and and teaching things like, no, actually, you need to banter. I'll give you banter as an example. When people go to me, well, how do you teach them not to take offense when people are just joking? They're just too sensitive. The to this, the to that, and I mm. to anything. But you have a right to feel comfortable in a conversation. Yeah. You have a responsibility to go, look, I know you're joking. I, I just don't find, I find that hurtful. And because autistics, we rely more on words than tone and intonation. The words are what we're focusing on, whereas banter, sarcasm and everything depends on the tone and intonation. And how well you know the person too, the connection. Absolutely. Um, and so you have a responsibility to say, I know you're joking. It just feels really uncomfortable for me. And then you can filter out friendships, the ones that go, oh, my God, I didn't know it upset you. I will try not to do it in future. They're still going to mess up. But if they are trying to do it less, they're a safe person to be around. The ones that go, oh, you have to make it all about you. Oh, is it your anxiety? Oh, because you're autistic. You're just too sensitive. It's just a joke. You know they're not emotionally safe. Doesn't mean you separate yourself from the group. You just know they're not emotionally safe and you shouldn't be taking their opinions as a call to action. Yeah, makes sense because if you can't speak your truth when something is making you feel edgy, nervous or just uncomfortable and someone comes down on you for that, they are not an ally. They are someone to be cautious around. I remember, not so much now, but definitely in the earlier days of my relationship with my partner, I would often turn around and say, don't tone police me, that's tone policing. (laughs) Just going back to your kids and their interactions. But it just, when you say something like that, if you're with the right sort of person, regardless of what that relationship is, whether it's a partner or it's platonic, you are then, the, the, the reasonable response is for them to go, oh, right, let's make this better. What could I do instead? And then you have an open conversation. But it's also being able to get to that point in the first place and understanding that you do have the option to say, hey, by the way, and then if their reaction is a negative one, that says more about them than it does about you. It really does. Absolutely. And this is completely what ABA robs our young people of. Yes. It absolutely robs them from knowing that just them feeling something is enough reason. Nobody needs to agree to understand or accept it um, and accommodate it. Yeah. And I mean and no matter and it's and and that that is the biggest part of it. And when you are so used, when people go, well, you're a bit dramatic talking about ABA causing us to be much more vulnerable to narcissists and to being in prison. Mm. And you go, actually, when your fight for yourself becomes 
really, really hard. It becomes a daily struggle to fight for the birthright, your autonomy. People think we want to control others when really the di- fundamentally what I have decided or thought or anecdotally or learned is the biggest difference between neurotypicals and neurodifferent diverse um, people, divergent people is all humans are compassionate, are fair, they're authentic, they're autonomous, they want freedom, they want to belong, they want friendships. All of us want that. Oh, yeah. However, the need to belong for neurotypicals is slightly greater than the need for autonomy and authenticity. The need for neurodivergence to be authentic and true is slightly greater than the need to belong. And, and that, in a nutshell, sums up why we will question social constructs like authority and rules and, and why we get accused of not being empathetic when really we're logical. We will alienate ourselves if we see a wrongdoer that's meant to be on the other side. Mm. Or, um, but if we see someone wronged who's meant to be on the other side, our logical empathy will go, but they're still a victim and perpetrator. Just because the perpetrator's my friend, I cannot overlook what yeah. they've done. And we get accused of being cold. As a young age, my dad would say, I can't believe that you would um, tell on your brother. Do you have no empathy? You're, you're just cold. I'm like, but he hurt someone. I, I just, I, I love my brother to pieces. Um, and I had a neurotypical say to me, well, what would you do if your son raped somebody or hurt somebody I said, I'd, I'd move to the nearest prison and love him for the rest of my days but I'd report him yeah yeah <laughs> there's a victim and that that blew their mind they're like you wouldn't bundle him up in a car and hide him right no why would I do that what's your mind but and it, that is the for me empathy is based on logic and truth Yeah, and another thing about empathy is sometimes we feel so many emotions that we aren't able to determine what we're feeling. So it can come out like almost robotic to a neurotypical. It isn't robotic, but it can come out as though we're not empathising or we don't have empathy when we say something like, oh, oh, that's not very nice. Oh, that's a shame. So where is your emotion behind this? It's like, stop tone policing me. (laughs) I am empathising. Not in the way that you would like to. So how about when you're not feeling like this, we have a conversation about what you'd like in terms of support. (laughs) Completely, it's that. When we're faced with somebody's problems, they'll either get blank face while we process. Yes, all the time. (laughs) Um, Because that's a lot of information. Or they'll get us going into our filing system. When have I felt like that? I need them to know I felt like that so they know I understand. Which is all about making it all about you and neurotypical standards. Absolutely. Or they'll get what you're saying, just the pleasantries we've been taught to say because we're feeling there's a lot of emotion. And and I'm I believe that all humans have this, but again, because we're nearer to our natural, more, more authentic self, in the same way we absorb sound through our ears and smells through our nose, we absolutely absorb energy throughout our being um and so when somebody is there feeling very emotional we're absorbing that and we can start feeling overwhelmed Um, and so we might just resort to pleasantries or something and again because there's more of them they have decided they have the monopoly on the definition of empathy Mm -hmm. and our empathy doesn't fit in yeah 
then it's not empathy. Yeah. Um, whereas if you ask us, I mean, even my daughter, when she was stressing, she, she would call me and she'll go, tell me stories when other people have felt like this. Oh, bless her. She, she wants to know it's okay. Yeah. That's autistic empathy. That's an amazing way to, to get through things as well. It's, a, it's really wholesome. Absolutely. But to a neurotypical, it's us turning the conversation about us again. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not. So any neurotypicals listening, <laughs> take note, take note. <laughs> yeah. and, and when you want us to empathise in your way, let us know. But when we're struggling, can you try our way sometimes? Because that's what we need, because we don't feel understood when you keep telling us to just be positive and, and focus on Ooh. this. Come on. It doesn't work like that. It doesn't work like that. If we can just reframe yeah. these ideas that you have decided there's a set definition for. Yeah, or you should read between the lines. No, just say it clearly. (laughs) And that's another one that drives me mad when they say we can't read between the lines. No, you've all agreed that these lines, reading between them, means something. Our brain is analytical. We know it might mean that one thing, but it might mean 400,000 other things. So what we're playing is guess what's in your head? not reading between the lines. I have this problem when teachers get over comprehension, they just don't get it. And you go, what did they actually say in response? And oh, they said, maybe he grimaced because of the sun, not because she just hurt his feelings. I'm like, and how do you know he didn't grimace because of the sun? Yeah. But the other children, they've all internally, neurotypicals seem to know, This is when we talk about their secret language, they seem to know what the others are thinking. <laughs> yeah. And that's what we're meant to do. But fundamentally, you're pretending there's a right answer when there isn't. Yeah. And I must say that I never realised just how much like conversation and people's actions and micro expressions that I miss until my partner came along. And then after we've been out and around people she'll say did you see such and such did you notice that such and such did this or they did that and I'm like no (laughs) I did notice that their hair's curling in a different direction today (laughs) yeah yeah (laughs) I just sometimes I find it like I really actually wish you wouldn't tell me everything that I'd missed because now I'm like did I get anything from that interaction I did obviously but it's it's quite astounding for someone that hears all the all the noises who misses so much of it as well. <laughs> Absolutely, and it, it's and that kind of sums up our brain, doesn't it? It's, if we're interested, we have no trouble learning it. Oh no, no. And and when I get parents panicking, going, if they don't learn this, I'm like, trust me, the easiest thing to teach a child is to pass their maths GCSE when they become interested in their maths GCSE. So we take an ADHD, for example, a thousand yep. years ago, if you wanted to become a doctor and you had ADHD, you'd be brilliant at finding the best doctor in your area. You would shadow them. You would learn everything. And then you would become their equal. Then you would become this. You, you would find a new way of connecting the dots and doing it better. Yeah. Now, if you want to become a doctor with ADHD, you have to go through a system and jump through hoops that are nothing to do with medicine or being a doctor. And we break you to the point where you believe you can't learn and you can't jump through the right hoops. And then suddenly you have 
you have no chance of becoming a doctor. And then we go, oh, you've got these really low skills. So we give you a low level job that also bores you to tears. Mm-hmm. You can't even do the low level jobs. Like, no, no, because you meant for the high level thinking jobs. Yeah. So my son is 16. He was home educated because the school system was breaking him. And I thought I'd rather have somebody who was in front of his games, engaging in something with his friends online, than to have him have irreparable damage from a system that does not cater to his needs. And my God, did I get backlash, backlash from family, his dad, people just raising an eyebrow saying, really? Yes, because I know my child and I'm going to do the best by him. And when he decides or when something comes along, not it's not necessarily about deciding, but when something comes along that captures his imagination, that he's like, I want to learn this. I know full well that he will run circles around his peers and he'll absorb all the information and he will just hyper-focus like a ninja on it. So it's more about finding that thing for him to latch on to. And as I say, he's just turned 16 and he's now realising that exercise is his safe space. It's one of the things that he absolutely loves. Just signed him up for the gym membership. He went down for his induction the other week and he came out and he was really anxious beforehand. And I'm like, you don't have a choice. You've got to at least try it. I said, this is a good outlet for you. And he came out all grins. And that's a rarity for for, for my wow. teenager. <laughs> oh, I can imagine I've got three that are on the other side of teenager. I had see them smile for six years. Yes, but he came out big grin, ear to ear, and he just he. I said, "Well," and he said, "My anxiety died." Whilst wow. I was in there, there was no anxiety, and I was wow. wondering where it had gone. So the gym is where my anxiety goes to die. I stopped being able to go to school. I was about 11 years old. Mm. And one day I just walked out the gates, and I remember slumping to the ground. And I was thinking, I don't know how I'm going to get home. I have nothing. I have nothing. And it brings tears to my eyes to remember that feeling so well. Mm. And I must have stayed there for two or three hours just time just disappeared and I just remember my dad coming towards me and I'm looking really confused and he looks angry why is he angry I, I was gone I mean literally I had nothing left to give and that was probably the last full week of school I did if not day um thankfully in our day we could get out <laughs> I used to turn up for morning registration and leave and then that's what I did <laughs> you can't do that anymore I was so disappointed when my daughter went to secondary one day she was late and I got this message going your daughter has not registered I'm like alone <laughs> I'll never forget the time I was stood in my house and I looked out the window and I just saw my son wander across the road and just disappear and then I was like why is he out of school yeah and then I just saw him wander back and just aimlessly wandering clearly not quite sure what to do or where to go and then I got a I got a phone call in that moment from the school to say that he hadn't been in for afternoon registration. And I said, yeah, I'm currently watching him. I said, don't worry, I'll have a word. But it wasn't long after that when he said, please home school me. And I said, right, I need you to write down the reasons why 
you would like to be home educated? The answer was yes anyway, but it was just a little bit of homework. <laughs> I mean, I, that brings me so much joy because fundamentally, and this is something I have to have a conversation with parents when they come to us, is children tell us. They tell us when they're struggling, but they're usually quite small and cute and they go, I can't go to school. I don't want to go. Oh, but you love school. I've seen you when you're there, you're having the best time. And they think, I did like this and I did like that, but something just doesn't feel right. But do you know what? I do sort of love school. So off they trot along. And then they wait a few weeks and that feeling's still there. They've got sensory overload. They're being invalidated. They don't fit in. They're getting in trouble without even trying. Constant microaggression. Sit still. Just try harder. Just focus. You're clever. Why can't you do this? Mm. But they don't know what's hurting them. And then they tell us by, you know, delaying in the morning, taking ages to find, to have their breakfast. Come on, you love school. We pull up their socks and we send them along. Then they tell us by desisting, standing still at that door, going, I'm not going. We pick them up and we take them. Then they tell us by ailments. My stomach hurts. My back hurts. And these are now true because something hurts. Yeah. Um, and then fundamentally, they tell us by hurting themselves or others. And then we listen. Um, and and so that neural pathway gets created that your needs can only be met if you hurt yourself or others. And helping parents go through that journey and, like you're saying, the avalanche of resistance yes. from people with letters behind their name, people with stethoscopes and white coats and, and all sorts of you're doing the wrong thing. And, and our job at Raising a Wild Child is to help carry parents through that the only way we know you're struggling is if you're self-harming eating disorders all these um things that say you're either hurting yourself or you're hurting others and suddenly we pay attention and what we need to do is peel back and listen when they tell us with their voice or Um, their behavior absolutely Mm. absolutely um and and that's i mean raising a wild child like i said i was it was being on the wrong side of the argument constantly. And I'd been and I, in my head. So I stopped going to school when I was 11, self-taught, in and out of care and all sorts of things because didn't have the best parents. And um, But so I thought I can do this. I'm going to do it from the inside. <laughs> I can fix this from the inside. I didn't know what autism was then. Yeah. It was my first year of teaching. And that's a whole different boring story about how I went, oh, okay. Um, um, but actually that's the opposite of ABA as well. That reminded me. So my first year of teaching, I had two boys at risk of exclusion and I was just a naive teacher who wanted to change the world. Um, and the ed psych came in and she said, oh, these boys are really settled. What's, what, how did you know what to give them? I don't know what you mean. She went, what's your background in autism? I have no idea what you're talking about. And she said, what did you do? And I said, exactly as I did for every single child in my class. I sat, I observed. I mean, I can teach a whole 90-minute session to young people without saying a word. I, just mm. I learned what they needed. They, these, these two boys were twins, and they were always slamming the doors. And in their head, in everybody else's head, these kids were just slamming this door. But when you sat and watched, you realized, oh, one's really interested in the pivot, and they change it, and they watch how the um, the door moves. They're really interested. And the other one was really interested in the sound. 
So I just set up a sound booth at the end of, they were lucky to have a garden for one and then, and a pivot board with like got a dad to come in and do loads of hinges and stuff on a massive piece of wood for the other. So I could watch the movement and that's all I did. But yeah. This had nothing to do with them being autistic and me being amazing. It was just me learning from them. Um, but yeah, and so, and then, but in schools, it's so often you've got well-meaning teachers, but when they're kind of handcuffed and can't do things, instead of standing side by side with the parent going, no, 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 the parent's telling us this child's struggling. I know we're not seeing it at school. And there are some key phrases, if it helps people, there are two key phrases I use with schools when they say, no, no, it's a parental problem because they're fine here. Mm-hmm. Number one, the biggest red flag is the goodest child in the classroom. So yes. You no know, yes. child's meant to be that compliant, right? Um, and so I always say, oh, my God, I'm so glad they want to please you. But I wonder if there's a way we can find that they feel comfortable enough to show you what they're really feeling at school so we get some bubbles at school and some bubbles at homes so that we can help them with as opposed to this explosion we're getting. Mm. And my other line is, because I'm an ex-Senko safeguarding, I, I, teachers realise they can't fob me off as much and, and head teachers. So the thing is, if we were at school and this child was playing up all day and the minute they saw their parent, they became over-compliant, we'd be calling social services. So why when it's opposite, it's the parent's problem? Mm-hmm. When it's this, this way, it's the parent's problem. Why? Um, and that usually makes them go, oh. Um, and the other one I like to do when you get the school refusal is literally go, okay, okay, I agree with you. They should be in school. Can you actually tell me step by step how you plan on getting this child from his bed into your classroom? Yes. And- and pushing them to actually, I mean, I had one of them go, well, we'll get two TAs to come round in a cab. And I went, and, and exactly how they, are you, I, I must be misunderstanding. Are you saying you'd physically get them to pick him up and put him in the cab? Like, no, of course not. <laughs> well, good luck getting him out of bed into that cab. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> into, use chocolate drops. Oh, don't. That, that was the first job I think I walked out of was the edibles. And they're like, you have to give them chocolate drops if they line up quietly and go into class. And I went, but, but, but I'm not Pavlov. They're not dogs. And yeah. I didn't even know about autism much then. <laughs> this is all. And, and I, and I, you get those moments, don't you, where you go, I've had enough. And you walk out because your true nature comes and it's, of course, you can't stay in that environment. And you get to the top of the road before you remember and you have a mortgage and three children. <laughs> did you continue walking or did you turn back I continued walking and yeah. you know what it's always worked out um I mean even raising a wild child since about two years old now I got cross because I wasn't allowed to help a child who was suicidal because it wasn't our remit Ooh. to help the family and so I went well my remit's done walked out all brave thought I don't know what I'm doing I literally had like three months mortgage payments in the bank and this family that said will you help us and then two weeks later lockdown here oh my god I have to learn zoom quickly but yeah that's just a little bit of the person stuff but going back to what you're saying about your son it's the greatest reasonable adjustment is an adjustment of the mindset and until schools realize this isn't willful behavior 
Yeah. They can use the thing with ABA. My early career was young children, child development and young children. I would notice that around three or four, before three and four, all children are quirky. Around three or four, and it coincides with development and the way our education system is structured, half the neurodivergent children will look around the room and go, I can do this. If I find the most successful model in the room and mimic them, I won't be in trouble. I can do this. I can do this. And the mask goes on. Yeah. And it says, let's screw that mask on really tight. Yeah. Half of the children look around the room and go, "Mm, nah. (laughs) Just, yeah. And rightfully, they get a lot of support, um, but their mental health is far more intact. With the mask, the mask inevitably falls off. Yes. You cannot carry it forever. So when you've got ABA screwing it on even tighter, it might last longer. It might look pretty to everyone on the outside, but you are destroying the child inside. And there comes a point where, thankfully, we are programmed to eventually put our survival first. And so the mask will fall off. You are yeah. not teaching lifelong skills because there's no self-understanding. There's and, and it breaks my heart, the number of incredible children that have no idea even when they want to go to the toilet. They don't know if it's okay because they look around and say, it's time to say I want to go to the toilet. And I have to teach grown adults, company owners. I've worked with people on million pound companies and I've had to say the key to unmasking is you know when someone says would you like a cup of tea and you answer simply I want you to so I teach scripts of and this is what ABA takes away from us I teach scripts of give me a second to think because we're going, oh, do they want to make a cup of tea? Do they want to make coffee or tea? Are they making tea? Are they making coffee? Is it the right time? Do they want me to go? Are they saying you want a cup of tea? Because they mean go. go. I don't know what they mean. Uh-huh. You need to step away and go, do I want a cup of tea? Yes or no? And basing your answer entirely on that. Yeah. And unmasking isn't this thing that happens overnight and we take off the trauma of ABA overnight. It's a chipping away. And Every and one day you'll go, Oh my god, I answered three. I asked to go to the toilet when nobody else looked like they were going to. I had said, Can we stop for a toilet break when nobody else needed the toilet? Yeah, and you realize I've done that for 10 minutes, I've done it for half a day, I've done it for a day, yeah, done it for two days, and slowly you emerge. I actually asked my son this the other day, I said, You know, when you say no. Is that always a no or is it sometimes a maybe? But in the moment, there's too much information. So your default is just to say no, because that shuts me up or shut someone, whoever is asking up, because it's just information overload. And that just feeds in beautifully to kind of what you just said. And I think it's something that isn't necessarily seen as a mask until you put it in a way like that. And you're like, oh, my goodness, that makes sense. I know I'm... I'm a nightmare for saying no because it's my default because it's just easy and it gets someone to just be quiet and then I can analyse it and then I'm like, but I am hungry. I did want the sandwich. Yeah. Oh, I did want a cup of tea. I am thirsty. <laughs> and that's the second part of it. If you've said yes or no, knowing you are fully allowed, this blows people's minds. Neurotypicals go around and convenience each other all the time. but they yeah. just, We think we can't inconvenience if you said yes or no, you walk away and you must ask yourself, why did I give that answer? Is it the true answer? 
yeah. when someone says, do you want to meet next week? And you go, yeah, of course. And you, why did I say yes? You're allowed to change your mind. Having to give a grown adult permission to change their mind is, is heartbreaking. It's, do you know, I offer like a blue light sort of call. So if someone's struggling and they're coaching with me, I say, well, drop me a message. If I'm around, we'll jump onto a Zoom. And if I'm not around, we'll schedule a time right within the day and we'll just jump onto a 20-minute Zoom and, and we'll have a chat. And the only time people ever use that session is when they essentially need permission to stop. And I'm like, well, one of my favourite quotes is, self-care is giving the world the best of you instead of what's left of you. And I say, you've got to think, do you want to hit burnout and have to take a significant amount of time off? Or would you just like to put your needs first, say no, burrito yourself. If you can't stick it in the oven or the microwave or order it in, then it doesn't get eaten. So before you hibernate, go and buy yourself something nice, some snacks and chocolate or send someone else out to do it and then just turn it all off. If you want to do Netflix, chill with Netflix. If you just want to read a book, do something for you. Whatever that looks like, do something for you. And then if you feel like you're ready to come back online tomorrow, come back online. Also, if you need another day, take it. It's so heartwarming to know there's so many of us fighting this fight because it can feel blinking lonely. (laughs) I know. And it's so easy to overlook these things as being small and significant, and they're not. People talk about loneliness and our withdrawal and everything else, but we only withdraw because it becomes such hard work. And how can you not be lonely? Again, this all goes back to ABA roots and and remembering that there's the ABA that we're talking about, the explicit, but masking is because life is ABA. It teaches us how not to stand out. ABA perpetuates that, which is why we have the same issues. How can you not be lonely if you're not connecting as your true self? ABA will teach you having 10 people around you means you're not lonely. And so you almost gaslight yourself going, how am I lonely? I've got 10 friends. How am I lonely? I've got 10 friends. But none of them have ever met you. None of them, you don't know you. Yeah. I have a memory of being about nine or 10. I I say numbers as though I actually remember. I was young. (laughs) And, And the girls were going... There's a group of girls and they said, what's your favourite colour? And they asked me first. And I went, you know the Dulux 1987 chart, the third shade of purple? And they looked at me like I'd grown an extra head. So the next time that question's asked, I don't answer. I wait. And then I'm going, oh, you said blue. Oh, there's two blues. So blue is a normal answer. Blue. Oh, three people have said blue. Now I'm going to be copying. No, okay, two yellows. And then, then you just go for that average to yellow. I stopped asking myself what my favourite colour was at that point. And that's fundamentally the crux of the damage ABA and life does and what masking does, which is why when I get parents going, but they don't know what they want. I'm like, of course they don't. We switched that switch off a long time ago. Exactly. That switch. We are born knowing exactly what we want, but you told us we should be ashamed not even we couldn't have it we should be ashamed for wanting it and then you wonder why we never voice what we want again even to ourselves yeah it's heartbreaking it's heartbreaking and marginalized groups like autistics 
and anyone who kind of falls into anything that looks remotely different to anything neurotypical, straight, anything that falls outside of those categories, you're conditioned automatically to be smaller than what you than what you are. And it's something that lasts a lifetime and you need to try and break out of that and step outside of those societally imposed restrictions and limitations because it's a lie. It's false. It's just a set of rules and it's not even rules. I don't even know what it is, but it's false. (laughs) You become the most muted version of yourself. Exactly. I know that over the last few years, as I've since I've realized I was autistic, I am autistic. My voice is just I'm just like, you know what? If you don't like it. Off you go, because I'm not here to please you. I'm not here to be liked. I don't like everybody that I come into contact with. Therefore, it'd be logical to think that not everybody is going to like me. Do you know what? That's fine. Let's not waste each other's time here. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's, yeah, and it's sad that it takes this long. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was 34 when I realized, so I'm still self-diagnosed, but it's, it was so liberating. Just that one thing, if there was, if I could, if I was asked a question of like what my biggest takeout from being autistic or learning that I was, that I'm autistic is, it's that. So just don't hurt yourself on the door on the way out. (laughs) Bye-bye. Absolutely. And then, and I don't know if you had to deal with the journey of rejection sensitive dysphoria on the way out of that when you first start and that panic when you've said, I need something, I want something. Or I no. still get it. And I think it's an ongoing journey. And people go, oh, it's a fear of rejection. No, 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 no. It's a whole body. It's like you've had your hands in the fire and you never want to put your hands in that fire again because it's physically painful. Yeah, it's a physiological response and it's real and it is crippling. But sometimes all you can do is just spit out a few words and start to take the steps. And then once you've got those first words out, it does start to slowly become easier. As long as you're not in a state of complete overwhelm, shutdown, burnout, meltdown. Of course, they're completely separate monsters. Absolutely. And the thing is, it's you're you're absolutely right. Once you've been through it at the moment, the only neural pathway you have is I don't ask, I don't feel this, and nothing goes wrong. Mm. Every time you go through it, what you're creating is a new neural pathway is I can ask, the world doesn't end. I can ask, the world doesn't end. So your brain's building evidence. Yeah. You're an adult now. And you yeah. can ask, and the world doesn't end. And and I teach those two mantras when they're going through that physical response. Is just sit there going, "My needs and wants are valid." Other people's reaction is not the. It doesn't mean I've asked for something wrong. Whatever they come back with doesn't mean I shouldn't have asked. And I breathe it through them. I like you. You get them on the end of WhatsApp and mm. um, in the moment moments of just kind of going, "Let's sit in this." Don't. So often people want to text back. I apologize. I shouldn't have asked. I didn't mean it. No, 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 no. Let's sit in it. Let's sit in it. Let's sit in it. And sharing that with them while they get their response and slowly building um, that neural pathway. On a positive, it is changing. It is. It is. It it, it is changing. I don't know if you've read Seth Godding's We Are All Weird. No, I haven't. Um, For me, it, it just kind of just helps when I see so many 
areas of the world catch not even catching up it's a marketing book and I think they're always ahead of the curve um and it, it is the idea that we need to all be average people to live average lives is going mm-hmm. out the window good it's about time we are so much more than average average is what the systems churn out we're not average <laughs> Absolutely. we've got the internet now where we all find our people I know, and the world is such a so much smaller than what it used to be. Having that internet there, really, is quite amazing. So, anyway, I think that you and I could chat for hours upon hours. <laughs> but how can people find you if they'd like to reach out to you for support? How can they find you? I mean, the main place that I tend to spend most of my time when I'm interacting with people is my Facebook page, raising a wild child. Um, and I am on LinkedIn as Susan Issa. Um, there will be a Raising a Wild Child LinkedIn coming up too. But the quickest way to find me is through the Facebook page, Raising a Wild Child. Okay. Um, and I think there's an Instagram as well, Raising a Wild Child. You think? <laughs> in the process of happening. Um, and there should be a book coming out in the next um, six months or so. Um, okay. so. But yeah, that's that's my main place. But Susan Issa on LinkedIn for now. Brilliant. Right. Well, I'll pop them into the show notes so people can just click through and find you and stalk you and maybe make contact with you. But thank you so much for chatting to me today. It's been a real pleasure. And as I say, I could go on and on and on. But yeah, likewise, <laughs> so much. I don't know why I was a bit nervous before this today, but I, that has that was wonderful. Thank you so much. No, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast.